listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Wild Ride by Chillicothe native Corey Breath. This folk pop artist currently based in Tip City is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. It probably goes without saying, but the older a case is, the more likely that the killer police are seeking is already dead. We saw that happen just last year when Columbus police solved the nearly 40-year-old murder of Kelly Prosser, an 8-year-old girl who was abducted walking home from elementary school in 1982, then found dead two days later in a cornfield. Authorities said she had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Last year, police finally were able to tie DNA from the crime scene to a man named Harold Warren Jarrell, who died in 1996 at the age of 67 while living in Las Vegas. And so with that DNA tie, police announced the case solved and closed the books. That's the great news, obviously. In most cases, a DNA tie is plenty to give a victim's family closure. The one thing that remains just a little annoying in those cases is that official records will forever use terms like likely or suspect because there can be no conviction. This month, in another case that ended in a similar way, Ohio's Attorney General David Yost said, Justice looks different. Rather than a trial and conviction, the story seemingly ends at the identification of the deceased offenders. The case Yost was talking about is our topic tonight, the 1974 murder of Lori Nesson. And this case has a fascinating twist. It's always law enforcement's hope that public review of cold cases might shake some new information from a newspaper reader or a TV viewer. And in Lori's case, that's exactly what happened. It resulted in a lightning-fast turnaround in which an unsolved murder that had been languishing for 47 years was seemingly tied up with a ribbon just a few weeks after new media attention. So let me tell you about Lori Nesson, a 15-year-old girl from Columbus, and the DNA connection that caused police to confidently close the books. In September of 1974, Lori Nesson was a sophomore and an honor student at Columbus Eastmore High School. She and her sister, Tony, lived on Barnett Road with their mom, Joyce. Their dad, Marvin, lived in Cleveland. Lori was very active in her community and her faith. She served as chairman of the Jewish Center Teenage Board, president of the Youth Division of the United Jewish Fund, she was corresponding secretary of B'nai B'rith Girls, and she also helped organize two conventions for a local youth Jewish organization. 
At the age of 15, all signs pointed to a bright and promising future. Crime Tracker 10 has uncovered a new homicide investigation in Reynoldsburg, but this crime happened 46 years ago in 1974. 10TV's Angela Ann explains why this now the city's oldest case on record. She was brilliant. She was creative. She was a dancer. You know, she wanted to be a lawyer. She would have made a difference in this world. That's Lori's sister, Tony Hastings, talking to reporter Angela Ann for Crime Tracker 10, a WBNS news program that aired this past December. By the way, that report is the one that's going to crack this case. Now, back on September 27, 1974, Lori went to the Eastmore High School football game to watch the Warriors play. Just two years before our story takes place, Eastmore, which is now called Eastmore Academy, graduated perhaps its most famous alumni, Archie Griffin, an All-American football standout. And in 1974, Griffin won the first of his two Heisman trophies while playing at Ohio State. So football is a very big deal at Eastmore. After Lori attended the football game that night, she made the rounds of three house parties with celebrating students. The third party was on Harding Road. She left on foot for home and was seen walking just shortly after midnight. But Lori didn't make it. The next day, Lori's naked body was found in a ditch on the west side of the 300 block of Rose Hill Road in the Columbus suburb of Reynoldsburg. That was five miles from the last house party she left. Her red sweater and two beige shoes would eventually be found alongside a road in another Columbus suburb, Gahana. Police said it appeared they were thrown from a moving car. Early news reports quoted authorities as saying it appeared the teen had died as a result of a poisonous substance found in her system. An autopsy found an unidentified white substance in one of her lungs, and authorities speculated maybe it was drugs, maybe she had died of an overdose. A couple of months later, Coroner William Adrian said the substance turned out to be nothing. There were no drugs or alcohol in Lori's body. But still, her cause of death was ruled as asphyxia by an undetermined manner. He said she could have been strangled, but there just wasn't enough information. And so the official record called her death natural. Also, while the report acknowledged that Lori had sexual intercourse that night, it stopped short of calling it rape. And the police issued a statement that they didn't think her death was a planned homicide. Lori's family couldn't understand. She wasn't a drug user, and how could her death be natural, but also asphyxia, and an asphyxia that the pathologist himself couldn't explain? And she certainly didn't dispose of her own clothes all over town and then lie down to die naked in a ditch miles from home. Police continued to investigate, and they had their hands full, Because Lori had been to so many places Friday night, that football game and the three parties, there were dozens of people to interview. Her friends kept saying the same thing. She was fine. She was in a good mood Friday night. No clues as to what went wrong. There was one point 
where police were searching for a red compact car that had been parked in the area where her body had been found. Police asked for help in identifying the car, but it came to nothing. The insinuation continued to be that Lori died, not necessarily murder, and perhaps someone was frightened enough to leave her body far from where it had happened. Lori was buried that Monday, and her classmates mourned her passing. Friends described her as a special and compassionate young woman whose personality netted her a ton of friends. A neighbor recalled her last conversation with Lori, how she couldn't wait to be a lawyer and how she was excited to be getting her braces off soon. A few months later, a group of juniors and seniors renovated a recreation room at the Columbus Jewish Center and named it the Lori Nesson Memorial Teenage Lounge. And while her files at the police department went into the cold case closet, they were available when detectives decided to take a second look in 1998 and again in 2007. But they never got any further in explaining what had happened to Lori Nesson that night so many years ago. Then, 2019. At the urging of Lori's family, Reynoldsburg police dusted it off one more time. Reynoldsburg officer Craig Bradford was working third shift patrol, but decided to add it to his to-do list. He had a 15-year-old daughter of his own at home. The mystery of Lori's death truly bothered him. In an interview with WBNS, Bradford said, Nowhere in the stretches of my imagination can I imagine the pain and the anguish that the Nesson family and friends went through over the last 46 years. Bradford said he found things in the file that raised his eyebrows, inconsistencies, he called them. There were some odd wounds in the autopsy photos and a timeline that didn't fit the original coroner's estimates. Bradford asked the current Franklin County coroner if she'd review the case one more time. Coroner Anahi Ortiz did, and she changed the official cause of Lori's death from undetermined to undetermined homicidal violence. She wrote, Homicide was the only plausible cause of death given the bruising and the suspicious circumstances surrounding Lori's death. But that didn't mean police were any closer to finding a killer. Not until last December 9, when Crime Tracker 10 in Columbus aired its TV program about the coroner changing the cause of death. The broadcast lasted less than four minutes, but the right person was watching. After the show, the viewer called Reynoldsburg police to say the death of Lori Nesson sounded an awful lot like the murder of her own cousin, in 1975, a murder that had happened just six months after and five miles away from where Lori had been found. And since the murder of her cousin was another cold case that had been solved in the last decade, maybe police should take a look at the two killers who left their DNA on her cousin. The case the caller was referring to was Karen Adams. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Karen Adams was a 17-year-old girl from Whitehall, another eastern Columbus suburb. She was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Bobby Adams, attended Eastland Vocational School, where she was studying to be a lab technician, and she worked part-time at Suburban Steakhouse on Hamilton Road, where her job was to prepare the salads. Karen was a quiet girl, the kind who kept her head down, studied hard, did her job. When she got to know you, though, the friendly, talkative side of her revealed itself. Six months after Lori's death on March 9, 1975, Karen left her home in Whitehall in her 1963 Mercury Comet. It was a Sunday evening. She told her parents she was going to a girlfriend's house to pick up some clothes she had left there. She really intended to meet a boyfriend at a local supermarket. Neither her friend nor her boyfriend ever saw her. On Monday morning, her family called police and reported her missing. They wouldn't have to wait long. That same morning, a local business owner, Chalmer Engel, and his son Norman were driving along Wangard Road. It's an isolated, less-traveled road in an eastern Franklin County community called Blacklick. And they saw what they thought was trash on the side of the road. But as they drove closer, they could see it wasn't trash. It was a body just eight feet from the pavement. It was Karen. She was partially covered by snow that had started falling early that morning. She was six miles from home, face down, her blue jeans unbuttoned, her sweater and bra pulled up to her neck her plaid coat hanging half off. Her shoes and one sock were missing. Later, police would find one of her shoes a mile from where the body had been abandoned. Her car was found at the A&P food store on Broad Street. The coroner determined Karen had been raped and strangled to death. The red marks around her throat had been obvious to first responders. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office investigated the murder, interviewing more than 35 people and doling out a handful of lie detector tests. The boyfriend who was supposed to meet up with her that night was pretty quickly dismissed as a possible suspect. The case went unsolved for 36 years. It wasn't until 2011 The sheriff's investigators submitted Karen's clothing and undergarments to the BCI for modern DNA testing. DNA profiles were compared to a national database of DNA samples that had been collected from convicted offenders. And that led to the discovery that Karen had not one, but two killers, Robert Meyer and Charles Weber. Both Meyer and Weber had violent rap sheets before they ever encountered Karen Adams that night in 1975. 
Meyer was already a convicted murderer. In 1963, he was sentenced for striking a man in the head with a hammer and killing him during a robbery. For that, he spent 10 years in the Ohio Penitentiary. It was there that he met Charles Weber, who was also serving time for robbery. Both men were freed in the early 1970s, and they moved in together. In 1974, they were living in Whitehall. But their freedom was short-lived. In 1976, the two men kidnapped and raped a 34-year-old woman in Toledo. That same year, Meyer was also identified for kidnapping and injuring a second Toledo woman. For those attacks, the men went back to prison. I couldn't find the sentencing of Weber, but I did for Meyer. He was sentenced in August of 1977, this time spending more than 23 years behind bars. He got out in 2001. Meanwhile, while Meyer and Weber were sitting in prison all those years, back in the Columbus area, police continued to look for the killers of Lori Nesson and Karen Adams. In 2011, when authorities finally identified Meyer and Weber as Karen's killer, Charles Weber was already dead. He died in 1992 at the age of 53 in Columbus. Since he'd been cremated, his son offered a cheek swab, which provided familial DNA to confirm Charles Weber's connection to Karen Adams' murder. Robert Meyer, however, was very much alive, 70 years old, and living in Cincinnati. At first, Meyer insisted he did not rape and strangle Karen and had no explanation for why his DNA was on her body. But he finally saw the folly of trying to explain away such convincing evidence and confessed. He pleaded guilty to Karen's murder and was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. And that's where he died a few years later. And so the killers of Karen Adams were known by 2011. But Lori Nesson's files were still collecting dust in a cold case closet just a few miles away. It took that caller, after the Crime Tracker 10 story aired in December, to say, hey, is anybody considering the two guys who killed my cousin? So in January... Reynoldsburg police submitted to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation clothing that they had of Lori Nesson, apparently clothing that had been sitting in their evidence room having never been tested for DNA. And just a few days ago, the BCI confirmed the clothing had DNA from the same two men who had killed Karen Adams. Devoni Herdman a forensic scientist at the BCI, described his surprise when the match was made after all this time. It was just incredible, he said. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Franklin County Sheriff's Detective Chuck Clark wasn't surprised at all to learn the two men that he helped identify in Karen Adams' case had left behind more bodies. He talked to WBNS in an interview this month. They would drink, just drive around the city, out the country, wherever, and they would approach uh, 
girls or young women that were by themselves, once they draw them close inside to, uh, towards the car, they would, one of them would jump out and snatch them and get them in the car that they joyride with them and sexually assault them and eventually kill them. Lori's sister, Tony Hastings, said she was stunned that after 47 years, her sister's case would be solved just weeks after that TV program aired. She learned the news from three Reynoldsburg police representatives who actually traveled all the way to where she now lives in North Carolina to deliver the news in person. Lieutenant Bill Early told WBNS, when you have a case like this and so much time has passed and you still have a living family member who, to some extent, was probably let down over the years, not necessarily by one specific agency, but just by the lack of answers in this, I think it was important to meet. Tony Hastings, Lori's sister, said it was a bonus surprise to get to meet the officers who revived her sister's cold case, especially Craig Bradford the third shift patrol officer who, moved by the tragedy because he had his own 15-year-old daughter at home, put in the effort to solve Lori's murder. It still hurts, she said, knowing the terror her sister endured that night. It changed the family forever. When this happened in 1974, she said, this didn't just happen to me and my mom. This totally changed everything for all of us. All my sister's friends, my friends, me, my family, things we used to do. In announcing the BCI's role in solving Lori's case, Attorney General David Yost said, This case was solved by pure determination by investigators. The application of modern DNA technology to a decades-old case and a well-timed tip from the public that proved to be true. And with that came the knowledge that there may be more. Meyer and Weber were now certainly serial rapists and killers, and authorities are encouraging police agencies from Columbus to Toledo to review all their cold cases from 1974 to 1977 when Meyer and Weber were free and when the two men would have had plenty of time to victimize other young women. Steve, the one thing that amazed me about this case was that you've got a county coroner reviewing the deaths of both Karen Adams and Lori Nesson. It's the same county, six months apart, and seemingly not making a connection. And then you've got two police departments just a few miles apart, seemingly not making a connection. Yeah, how can that be? It's not like they happened years apart or across the state from each other. These people, the authorities are reading the very same newspapers. They are. And that's how I found out that Reynoldsburg police did absolutely raise eyebrows when Karen was murdered back in 75. I found a story in the Columbus Dispatch in March of 75, and the last paragraph of the story said Reynoldsburg was interested in the Karen Adams case because of similarities to Lori Nesson. 
I can only assume that this curiosity must have gotten lost over generations of Reynoldsburg detectives. Otherwise, Lori's murder, you know, maybe they couldn't have solved it back in 75, even knowing that. But it certainly should have been solved a decade ago when they figured out who Karen's killers were. Exactly. And I was talking about how far away, you know, being in the same city. Uh, Reynoldsburg and Whitehall, Jennifer, my sister, lived in Reynoldsburg. And Whitehall's right next door. It's really that close. Right, right. I mean, you pointed it out perfectly. They're reading the same newspapers. I, I don't know. I'm glad they finally figured it out, but obviously it took a call from a listener. And I love that. It's It verifies that getting these cold cases in the public and making sure they stay out there will put more eyes on a case and increase the chances of solving them because the person who eventually solved this case was a viewer of that TV program. Exactly. And, you know, good for David Yost. I mean, you can just tell we're not giving up on these cold cases. You know, if you have any information, come forward. People are people are doing just that. Absolutely. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Corey Breath was born and raised in Chillicothe and currently lives in Tip City, where he creates original folk, Americana, and pop music. He has been singing since he was three years old, but only writing his own music for the last decade or so. And already he's open for several national acts, including the Magnetic Zeros and 21 Pilots, and he performed during a month and Sons tour. I bet you'll hear some of those influences in his music. You can keep up with Corey Breath on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you like this music, go find and follow him. The song we're featuring tonight, by the way, comes from his third full-length album. Well, let's have another listen to Wild Ride by Corey Breath. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.